two things about the resurrection 1 Corinthians 15 gives us. Number one, we're reminded about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an, is an undisputable fact. If there be no resurrection of the dead, your faith is in vain, the apostle said. Secondly, we see the resurrection in the future. Paul is not secluding this chapter just to the, the, the monumentalness of the Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead and the, and the greatness of that cardinal doctrine in our belief. But he also talks about something that is referred to in the Old Testament and New Testament like. In fact, Jesus spent time talking about that throughout the gospel, especially in John chapter 5. And that's the resurrection of the body of the believers. When you go over back to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel talks about the rising, the resurrection of the saved and the unsaved. And, and, those, and those who have hope and those who will be damned as far as eternity is concerned. There's a resurrection in the future. And we know this from our studies. There's, a, there's two resurrections the Bible speaks about there. But we notice something else here in this passage as well. Well, it's the last one we studied when we looked at uh, some, some uh, earlier verses, I think from verses 24 to verse 35. And that is we see the resurrection in our faith. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was meant more than just to be doctrine that would become cold and fundamental and just something that we just have knowledge of. It's supposed to affect our faith. It's supposed to be life transforming. And as we go back for a little bit there and go back to the book of Acts and study how they preached the resurrection and the resurrection was still fresh in the eyes and the minds of the people of that day and how just even many years later they preached and, and taught about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It affected their faith. And the resurrection should affect our faith. We need to bring ourselves back to that time, that place where kind of where the apostles, when Jesus came to the upper room and he showed them the wounds in his hands, his feet, his side, and they, they beheld their Lord and their Master. And even though we don't have that experience per se, we have enough of a mental idea and concept from the Word of God that the resurrection should impact our faith. If we, if we live our life like the, like the early day disciples did in terms of their knowledge and their acceptance and the transformation the, the resurrection had in their life, there would be something different about our churches, about our preaching, about our living, and, our re and pe reaching people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to remember as we look at this chapter, as we come to this conclusion, Paul had to diffuse the erroneous thinking of the Grecian culture that was embedded in the Corinthian believers. And the, er and the erroneous thinking was that there was no bodily resurrection. You know, I can equate it this way. We have uh, some folks that are that are they're, they're born into a particular culture and the religion of that particular culture, or the practices are ingrained from the moment they, 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 they are brought in that family. And so when they get to adulthood, they're so ingrained with certain certain things that they do that it takes a while before they pretty much come to the conclusion and realization that these are wrong practices that they need to abandon and leave alone. And that was happening here in Greece. That was happening with the Grecian believers that they they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Then to compound things, there was not the teaching going on and the difference between the flesh and the spirit and so forth like that as we've been talking about in first john and the end result of that was that these believers had a very very difficult time and because they had a difficult time grasping it, it affected their doctrine it affected their behavior and as we've said over and over again belief determines behavior doctrine determines duty and so what we believe must get a hold of us and what we believe must grasp us and change us and transform us so that we feel like we're going into action doing something for the lord jesus christ there and so in this final section paul gives us a massive of a preview of what happens when the resurrection in the future, the resurrection of the body of the believer occurs in the future, and what it should do to your life and mine. Three things I want you to see tonight. If you're taking notes, three things I want you to see. Number one, I want you to notice in verses 51 to 56, I want you to notice the marvelous change. The marvelous change. Paul said in verse 51, he said that the resurrection of the body of the believer is a mystery. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. Now, up until he wrote this, Jesus talked about it. Daniel talked about it. Job referred to it. Uh, uh, Hosea talked about it. But, and David talked about it in the Psalms. But the unraveling of all that really did come about until Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. And he's unraveling to them to help them understand, just like he did at the church of Thessalonica, of the impact of the resurrection resurrection Jesus Christ is something to look forward to. I think the greatest fear we have as Christians is we look into the future and we know that heaven's there, but the closer we are on the timeline of life, of getting to heaven, or if our, if our life seems to be at a place where 
we're, we're deteriorating. We know that our time is short. All of a sudden, eternity becomes very real. And there's more of a soberness we have because we know our time here is very short. But if we don't have a grasp of heaven, and if we don't have a grasp of eternity, instead of approaching it with anticipation and with gladness and excitement and exuberance, and as Paul did, he said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If we don't have that grasping us and getting hold of us, we're going to approach death and the future with fear and trepidation and with unknown. And we'll kind of be just like the pagans and the unsaved who really don't know themselves as well there. And so Paul wants these believers to know, I'm going to show you a mystery. I'm going to unravel something. It will no longer be a mystery to you. You're going to understand the doctrine of the resurrection. And he says about this future resurrection of the body of the believer. He says in verse 51, we shall all be changed. In verse 52, he says, we shall all be changed. We're going to be changed. The word change means an alteration. The word change means a transformation, a transfer, if you would, changing one thing into something better. Now, notice some things about this marvelous change. As we look at chapter 15 and verse 51, verse 50, the first thing we notice that it's a spiritual change. If you look at verses 46 to 50, he talks about resurrection being spiritual. Now, it is a bodily resurrection. Be careful if you pick up anything outside the Bible about the doctrine of the resurrection. Be careful of writers, especially writers in the past, who, who taught that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was in spirit and not in body. Listen, Jesus Christ rose again in the body. He showed his hands, his feet, and his wounds. It's a bodily resurrection. It was a physical resurrection. Now, granted, it was a glorified resurrection, but it was a physical resurrection, not a spirit. That was one of the challenges they had in the first century with false doctrine. And Paul said this, if you go down there, verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, the the last hand, or second hand as we call him, is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. So in other words, the first Adam, the one who sinned, was natural. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose again from the dead, that is spiritual. And afterwards he said that is spiritual. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy, and the second man is of the Lord, is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now grasp that, what he says there in verse 49, before I get to verse 50. The resurrection of the body of the believer is one that is heavenly. We will bear the image of the heavenly. Now we don't have time to get into it, but I'll probably read it later tonight. But in Philippians 3.21, Philippians 3.21, he talks about how God shall change these vile bodies and fashion them like unto his glorious body, by whereby he is able. Now notice this, he says in verse 49, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. It's a spiritual. It's spiritual in its nature. But notice verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now here's something we have to understand. These physical mortal bodies as we have right now cannot go into heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. We cannot go in there. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because these fleshly mortal bodies as they are, are sinful. No sin can go into heaven. These sinful bodies are corruptible. That's why the resurrection is so critical because corruption will put on incorruption. Mortal shall put on immortal. It's a spiritual nature by what God will do there. Bodily resurrection is spiritual nature. There's something else we notice here. Not only do we see the change that is spiritual, but notice we see a change of the sleeping. In verse 51, he says this, Behold, I show you mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, you know, the, the picture that God gives in the New Testament of a believer who leads this life is that their, their spirit, their soul has gone to be with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing, amen, because the soul of the individual is very real. But the body itself stays here. The body or our shell remains here. Now, he describes our bodies being sleeping. Now, that's a comforting thought when you read this. And you read First Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a comforting thought to know that the, the body of the believer is sleeping. If you would, the body is laid to rest. He's sleeping because later that body will be resurrected. There's a great comfort for us to know as believers that as we lay to rest a loved one in the ground, that we know that, that the body of the individual is sleeping, God will raise it back up again. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14 says, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, that's a great thought for us. Because the Bible's telling us, listen, there are those, these believers in Thessalonica had, had loved ones that had predeceased them. They were laid in the grave, and they were still grieving and sorrowing over them. And he wasn't being callous. He wasn't being cold. He wasn't being insensitive to them. And he's saying, listen, I would have you. But, he, but he's writing back to them. He says, he says, I want you not to sorrow, which as, as the pagans of their day, that, that day did, because they have no hope. Because he said this in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now that's a comforting thought, to know that, that those who are dead in Christ, are, he pictures them as sleeping. Uh, what a wonderful thing to know that when you're asleep, that what wakes you up is an alarm. Alarm happens that wakes you up. And thank God tonight, as we think about the passing of a loved one, that their bodies are laid to rest, but they're sleeping. We see here that this this change involves a, uh, we see here it's spiritual. This change we see is, is one that involves uh, those who sleep. But notice verse 52. We see this change also involves a summons. Now there's going to be a summons. When the resurrection happens, it's going to be grand. It's going to be great. It's going to be God. It's a, it's a summons from God. The alarm clock's going to sound. It's not the call of a bugleist doing the revelry call. It is Jesus Christ himself that's going to call up his, his beloved out of the grave. He's going to, we're going to be raised incorruptible. Now, the Bible says this in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Now, there, in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it tells us this. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, I guess it actually elaborates on it more. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we're told there will be two shouts and then the trumpet of God. Two shouts and the trumpet of God. The archangel will shout. The Lord Jesus Christ will shout. Now, the first shout will be that of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom. The church is the bride. When the Lord Jesus Christ descends from heaven for the rapture, his feet, as we know, will not touch the earth. But he descends from heaven. Kenneth Weiss, in his, in his books that he has, uh, makes this statement. I don't, I don't think he can give much credence to it, but he makes a statement. He believes from his study that the Lord Jesus Christ will descend right around the height of Mount Olympus, which is about 6,000, 7,000 feet above sea level. He believes Jesus will descend about that level, and that's where the dead in Christ will meet him, and then we'll join them in there at that level. And I don't think you can put any, you can put anything, any, any credibility to that, because the Bible doesn't say that. We just know that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, and somewhere in the first heaven, which is what we can see, the Lord will be there, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, there will be, the, there'll be the, 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 the shout of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's he going to shout? Well, the Bible tells us about that in Revelation 4.1. I believe the words he's going to say, because he's descending as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's going to descend and say, come up hither. Now, if you read Proverbs, Proverbs tells you that a person who was allowed to come to the presence of the king, that that person, that the, the statement the king would make to him would be this, come up hither. In other words, you can come up to my throne. You can come up to my presence. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Thing, that those who are sleeping in Jesus Christ, the first words they're going to hear out of the ground are, come up hither. They're going to know those words. They're going to know their Lord. The Bible says, my sheep know my voice. Amen. The great shepherd is going to descend from heaven. He's going to call his sheep. The sheep are going to rise up. My sheep know my voice, he says. They're going to rise up. But there, there's the shout of the archangel. The shout of the archangel followed by the trumpet of God, and I believe that archangel might be Gabriel himself, followed by the trumpet of God, tells us that God's people are going to be called up. All the dead in Christ will be called up, and I believe with that trumpet of God, is to get, it'll, be, it'll be ready to call God's people up. Now, when we look at the Bible, Numbers chapter 10 tells us something about the usage of trumpets. Now, trumpets were used for two reasons. You can read this in Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. Number one, trumpets were sounded as an alarm or for war. Now, you had to be listening. There was a certain tune, a certain sound to a trumpet when there was war. That meant you better, strap your, you, better, you better strap your armor on. You better strap your sword on. You better get your armor ready. You, did, you, had, you were supposed to be in a special place. You need to get your things ready because we're going to war. Secondly, they, when the trumpet was blown, it would be blown for alarms or wars. But the second time, another way, uh, another means of trumpet sounds would be for assembly or for worship. And God mentions there, I think it's in Numbers 10.10, that he says you, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, you're to assemble for the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and the beginning of your months there. So they were to assemble and worship. Now, I believe as we hear the trumpet, 
And if we hear these two, these two calls, I believe it's for both purposes. One is for the assembly of worship that we're going up into heaven. And that's why when we read over there in Revelation chapter 4, the scene we see in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 is just worship. God's people assembly, the 24 elders rep- representing the redeemed of all ages. And we're there worshiping our Lord and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also think it's also a reminder that war is coming, that it's an alarm, that the great tribulation is about to follow and everything that needs to come to place there. And so we read here that there'll be a summons. There'll be the sound of the alarm, the sound of the, the two shouts and the trumpet of God. We realize there, the Bible says here in verse 52, he says in the, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. And when that trumpet sounds, the Bible says the dead shall be raised incorruptible. They'll be raised. They'll be caught up in the Lord to meet in the air. Now this sound, this summons, will be distinguishable. Today I had to go help my mom on something uh, there and I heard the siren go off by where she lives and... Um, at lunchtime, I heard the siren going off. I said, Mom, what's going on here? I thought, you know, I said, there's, there's something going on here. And, and I guess the recurring thing that happens there. And, you know, you, you know the sound of a siren. It's very distinguishable. You know the sound of an of a EMS truck or of a fire truck. It's distinguishable. Or of a, of a police car. But did you know that the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel, voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll be distinguishable. You'll know it's time. It's not only distinguishable, it's, a, it's definite. It's time for de- it's time that we're going to leave. But it's also sound that tells us it's a departure. It's a departure departure from this old world, from all the grieving, from all the sorrow, from all the heartache, from all the death, from all those things that happen. And the dead in Christ, many who've been laid in the graves for maybe as long as since the time as our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, those who've been laid in the grave for over 2,000 years, and those most recent, they'll all be raised incorruptible. They'll all be raised at one time. They'll all be raised instantaneously. They'll all be raised in the twinkling of an eye. They'll be raised, and their bodies are transformed. They'll be incorruptible. They shall all be changed. And by the way, we which are saved, when we are raptured, we're going to follow them. We also shall be changed. It's going to be a marvelous thing that all of us are changed in that moment of time. This will put off this old vile body and then he'll make our bodies like unto his. There'll be the summons. But notice verse 52. In this change, it will also be sudden. The Bible says this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Not a blink of an eye. The twinkling of an eye. Many believe that this concept of the twinkling of an eye could be as quick as the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. That's fast. And when you think about it, it is so instantaneous. It's the twinkle of an eye, and we're gone. I mean, that's a, that, what a phenomenon when you think about this. You think about all the millions and perhaps even a billion, as many as a billion Christians around the world instantaneously taken up, graves being empty, tombs being empty, places being empty, bodies no longer there, but people are missing. It'll be instantaneous. They will be gone. It'll be sudden. We think about the speed of this. God is not going to have a delayed effect. We're going to move. You talk about a bullet train. I mean, we're going to have a bullet removal. Amen. We're going to be suddenly taken out by the Lord. We're, going to, we're gone. I mean, we're just out of here. And thank God for that. And you know why? Because we need to leave this old world. This old world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Amen. We need to realize it's time to get up and to get out and to leave this place. You'll notice something else. Look at verses 53 to 54. We're talking about this change, a change that is spiritual, a change that is sudden, a change that is swift. But in verses 53 to 54, this will be a change where there'll be a switch, a change, an alteration, a transfer. The Bible says this corruptible must put on, it has to put on. For resurrection to meet the Bible description, to fulfill what is described in the Old and New Testament, there has to be a change. Listen, the process of salvation, as we understand it, when we get saved, there's justification. After justification, we live the Christian life, that's sanctification. But after sanctification, we're not perfected in this life. When we are perfected is when we leave this life and there's glorification. And glorification happens when we're out of this world. And the Bible says that this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, when this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Get kind of a glimpse of this. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 29, we have a... The Bible speaks here about the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like how Luke presents it. Because in his capture of it, he said Jesus took the three up there, Peter, James, and John, to pray. He took them to the mountain to pray. 
It says in verse 28, it came to pass about an eight days after these saints, he took Peter and John and James and he went to a mountain to pray. Look at verse 29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. And his raiment was white and glistening. Now the word altered is our word heteros. Heteros means another, difference. We use it to describe men and women being different. Heteros. Paul used that term in Galatians 1 when he said, some are preaching another gospel. It's heteros. It's saying here, this alteration is completely different than what he was in appearance a moment before that. It was in his glorified state. Jesus was not corruptible. He was always incorruptible. But the apostles, those three apostles, saw the alteration. They saw the glorified Christ. As we think about that, Philippians 3.21, as I referenced to you early, earlier, says this, that the Lord shall change our vile body. Now, we're not the ones changing it. The power of the Lord instantaneously makes us corruptible, incorruptible, and this mortal, immortal, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. So you want a glimpse of what this glory, this glorification will be like? It'll be just like his glorious body. Just as we saw in Luke chapter 9, just as we see in John chapter 20, as Jesus presented himself to his disciples, just as he walked down the road to Emmaus and talked to the two there. It'll be changed. Light, it'll be fashioned like this glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things himself. Hey, brother and sister in Christ, when we think about the resurrection of the body of the believer and his occurrence, his timing, it's a marvelous change that only God can do. But notice in verses 54 to verse 57, there's the supremacy of this change. Paul said in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Now you have to go back and listen to the message I preached from Isaiah 25, because I made some reference there, but look what Isaiah 25 says. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people he shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Now the word swallow... Interesting word, basically means to swallow, to devour, to drown. Literally what he's saying here, death is swallowed in victory, there will be the death of death. Death is finished. It is the last, it is the last enemy. And he said in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. Now he draws that from hope with Hosea 13, 14. Listen to Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death, O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. Now notice three times he says in verse 54, verse 55, and verse 57, he references to victory. Did you know the resurrection is victory? It's that word nikos that we studied when we studied through the book of Revelation. The word victory means an overcoming, a conquering something. Death is conquered by our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed in victory. Listen, death is not the end of the believer. Death is just the beginning. Death is not an entrapment in the grave. Death is glorious graduation, praise God. Death is not a woeful tragedy. It is a wonderful triumph. Listen, death is our entryway to the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is our way of coming home when the Lord waits there at, 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 at heaven's gate and he says, welcome home, my child. Listen, it's a wonderful thing to know that there will be a marvelous change of believer. Listen, don't think about when you lay me in the grave or you're laid in the grave, that's it. No, there's going to be a change of that body in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You'll be raised incorruptible. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass that which is written, death is swallowed in victory. What a wonderful thing that it should happen in our lifetime, that the dead in Christ will be raised, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. What a wonderful thing to know there will be a marvelous change. Beloved, we're going to be changed. Just like Him. This is the second thing we see. There's a marvelous change, but we have our mortal challenges. That's why Paul wrote this chapter. We have mortal challenges. Until that day, until that time. We have the challenge of a weekly flesh. A weekly flesh. 
There's the appetites of the flesh. Lusts. Cravings. Desires. Our flesh is weak. The Bible says in Romans 7.18, that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7.25, that with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we have fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's the appetites of the flesh. They're the afflictions of the flesh. You study our prayer page. There's diseases and sicknesses. Brother Lito's Martinez, we talked about his aunt here to ask you to pray for Aunt Cell, Tita Cell. She had one underlying health condition. A few months ago, she had a stroke. She's been on dialysis. We've been praying for her. Her condition's not improved. She's had more bad days than she's had good days. Disease and sickness. I look at our prayer page and some who have been dealing with afflictions. Some who got diagnosed with illnesses and situations. Went through just a lot of valleys in their life. Finally got to a place where the doctors got into control and they're basically kind of stabilized. And then they get a flare up of something and it just gets them going again. I had, had uh, went down to preach chapel, West Coast Baptist College on, I think, what day did I go? I drove down Monday afternoon and preached yesterday morning at 9 o'clock and had the occasion to have dinner with Brother and Mrs. Weaver, and Brother Weaver's a godly man, just a good, good godly man. He's been down there many, many years, and just good to catch up with both of them. And they, uh, Mrs. Weaver, I think both of them, they went to Tennessee Temple Schools back in the day when Dr. Robertson was, was the president and chancellor of the college back in the heyday of Tennessee Temple Schools, which no longer exists. And Brother Weaver has gone through just a lot of things. He's had, he's had uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma that he went through great treatments on. He had a melanoma of the finger that had to amputate part of his finger. He's just had a number, number of different things going on. And he was telling me over dinner last, on, uh, on Monday night just to some other health occurrences. And he's 74 years of age. And you know, I said, Brother, Brother Weaver, I said, if you don't mind, I'm going to just pray for you right now. And just ask God to just give you respite and help through all those things. But, you know, we have the afflictions of our flesh where we have diseases, we have sickness, we have aging. You read over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 gives us a very morbid idea of just the aging of the body there. And then there's weariness. You know, we can be going, going hard and hard and hard and working hard and we get weary and tired and exhausted. I think of the Chan family right now as we, we pray for them that they're going through great exhaustion having been by Jamin's side and now he's passing into, into glory there and now they're just having to deal with that a- aspect of things. And, you know, they're, they're just kind of torn in both ways. You know, we, we, have, we have this weekly flesh of ours. This weekly flesh of ours gets in the way. Our flesh gets in the way of serving God. Our flesh gets in the way, it gets in such a way we make excuses why we can't do things for God. We make excuses why we can't get up on time. We make excuses why we can't pray. We make excuses why we can't have our devotion. We make our excuses why so what is not important. Oh, we believe in missions and we believe in having Bible conferences. And we know that we have the personality mystique of having a Sam Davison or Terry Unruh come that our attendance goes up and people come and somehow we find the priority to make our way there. And somehow along the way, when we get on with the, the, the enthusiasm, euphoria, of all these things we get involved when we just come to what we call a normal Sunday all of a sudden we just find ourselves back in the old routine we can't make time for this we can't make time for that and our flesh gets in the way and we're too tired and we're too weary and we got this going on and that going on we're stressed out and all these type of things here. I'm just saying today you know we're dealing with the weekly flesh and our flesh dwelleth no good thing that's why Paul said in Philippians chapter, th- chapter 3 I put no confidence in the flesh now if you trust your flesh you need to go back to Philippians 3 and realize we can't, co- we can't have confidence in our flesh Our flesh is deceptive. Our flesh is evil and weak. But then there's our worrisome fears. Our congregation, just like other congregations. Extremes where people go through the storms of life. Except their storm just seems to go on and on and on and on. Those going through fiery trials... Boy, they are fiery trials. Those going through personal losses, extreme difficulties. There's extreme of loneliness, anxiety attacks, worrisome fears. And it's easy for us when it's not our worry, it's not our anxiety, we get hyper-spiritual and we quote Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing until it's our fear and our worry. 
And when a fear and worry comes, what happens is that we really can't see beyond the, our hand in front of our face, and we don't know what the next step is, and we're very stressed about the situation. We get concerned that the diagnosis may be worse than it really is, and we get concerned that all these bad things are going to happen, and we're dealing on a constant basis, these worries and fears. I wonder if this is going to happen, what that's going to happen, and if they leave me, what am I going to do there? Who's going to take care of me? What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? And all the, all the pride and arrogance we had in, about when we were younger, all of a sudden that's escaped us, and we realize that we're so mortal in our ways. I'm just saying today, we have our mortal challenges as we go on. I mean, thank God we have the resurrection. And thank God our bodies are going to be changed. Amen. There'll be no more disease and there'll be no more sorrow. Thank God for that. And thank God we're going to be in his likeness. And thank God God is going to change us. But while we're in this life, there's still the mortal challenges of a weekly flesh, worrisome fears. And then there's our woeful, the woeful foes. We have our flesh. We have Satan bothering us. Paul talks about some of these foes. Go with me over back to in chapter 15. Look at verse 33. Evil communications corrupts good manners. Sometimes our worst enemy are people we're close to that are not as spiritual as they really should be. We have to choose our friendships carefully, our associations carefully. The Bible describes the friendship that we should have as iron sharpening iron. So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Paul and Barnabas had a parting of ways. Paul needed a new partner to go, go with him on his missionary trail and missionary endeavors. And while he was there in Jerusalem, he had time to study two men. A man by the name of Judas and a man by the name of Silas. The Bible describes these men as chief men among the brethren. But the best description about them, they were both prophets of God who spoke many words, and God blessed them. But the greatest description of these men is that it describes them as this in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 26, men that have hazarded their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not sure how they hazard their lives, but the word hazard basically means that they put their life on the line. They were at risk. They were in danger of their life. They probably got in trouble for preaching the gospel, and they had a number of things happen to them. And Paul looked at this man. He says, you know what? I like what I see in Silas. I like the fact this man has stayed true. He stayed faithful. He's got the acceptance of the brethren. He's got the acceptance of the leadership here. James and Peter have respect for him. He were called chief men among the brethren. He had a good report among people. He was a good leader. He had good influence there. And Paul thought, if I'm going to take a man with me on the ministry out there to start churches and things, and places we've never gone to where I need somebody who's reliable. So he said, I want somebody who's got good influence. Now go back to verse 33. Paul said here, evil communications corrupts good men. If we don't have good friendships, our friendships have a tendency to bring us down, not to bring us up. We have to come to the realization that it's easier to succumb to something that brings us down instead of being part of something that brings other people up. Evil communications cross command. Hey, listen, you get around somebody who changes in their doctrine, you listen to them enough, you're going to, you're not, you're just, you know, nobody wants to say no, nobody wants to say, yeah, I don't agree with you. So the end result is you start agreeing with them, you become just like them. And then notice he talks about not only evil communication corrupting good manners, He talks about in verse 32 about the evil beast. Uh, the, the, he said he fought with the beast at Ephesus. Now, I don't believe these were literal beasts. But I believe he's talking about those who disagreed with what he preached. They were Judaizers. They hated the gospel he preached. They were Jews that stirred up controversy wherever Paul went. His description of them was they're wild beasts at Ephesus. Brother and sister in Christ, we have immortal challenges. And while we can focus on verses 50 to 58 and think about the resurrection, the truth of the matter is the devil doesn't want us to think about glorification. The devil doesn't want us thinking about sanctification. The devil doesn't want us thinking about those things. The devil gets us sidetracked by evil communications and by the wild beasts at Ephesus. And the devil gets us stressed out. And the devil allows anxious fears to come along the way. And so we've got our worrisome fears and we've got our weakly flesh that gets in the way. And all of a sudden we find ourselves, instead of being encouraged, instead of going on strong for Jesus Christ, we get sidetracked. And we get to 1 Corinthians 15. 
see, that was the trouble with the church at, si- at, at Corinth. They were sidetracked. This was, this was just a shadow of what they used to be right there when you get back to Acts chapter 18. I mean, what you read at that moment in time, they're just a shadow of what they were and winning souls and influencing Corinth for the glory of God. That's why God told Paul, don't worry, son. I want you to stay here for another 18 months. Don't be afraid of their faces. You just keep on preaching the gospel. He said, I've got many people in the city. There's still more work to be done. And he got a leadership team together there at Corinth. And we read about them in this chat, this book here. And they got on fire for God. They started winning souls to Christ. And it got to a place where this leadership team grew to a place where Paul set them aside and said, listen, you go ahead and baptize these believers. And you go ahead and teach this class here. And you go ahead and do this. And let's, he did try to put everything on himself. He just got men that he could trust to take the work of the ministry. But as soon as Paul left, after a period of time, this church started drifting because of evil communications that corrupt good manners. And the wild beasts at Ephesus that came in there and brought false doctrine. And we know about all the sins and problems of the church at Corinth. And instead of being a church on fire, over a period of time, the fire diminished and the fire went out. And the gospel was not as important. And the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ lost its flavor. Listen, if it happened there, it could happen here at his Baptist church. And their question was, before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, is God real? I want to tell you something tonight. God is real. Does God care? Yes, God cares. He cares more than you know he cares. Our faith is challenged. The marvelous change. Thank God for the resurrection of the body. Our mortal challenges. As we close, notice verse 58. God, Paul is used of God to give them a motivating charge. Notice as we get to verse 50 to 57, he's kind of climbing the stairs. They're at a crescendo, as they would musically say. Verse 57, he says, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ overhelps us overcome death. Jesus Christ overcomes corruption. Jesus Christ overcomes mortality. Jesus Christ overcomes death. Jesus Christ overcomes sin. Listen, there's nothing Jesus can't overcome. Amen? You're of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. So Paul's thinking about this church, and I imagine as he's writing this, because I think at times he was a sentimental man, I think I can imagine as he's writing this, and he's trying to, he's trying to help them understand, and he spends a, a, a very meticulous time as we read chapter 15. I mean, it's not a quick reading chapter, as he's writing chapter 15, and it's a monumental chapter. He's writing them, he wants to make sure they've got the fundamental of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ down pat, and he wants to make sure they've got down pat the fundamental of the resurrection of the body of the believer pat, and he wants to have them make sure they get rid of their insecurities securities and their anxieties and their fears about what's going to happen in the future and that everything we have to look forward to is nothing but good stuff as far as God's going to give us there. And when you read about all this here, you think, man, what a wonderful thing. We're going to be changed and it's going to be what a transformation we're going to have and it's going to happen so quickly and all these things that go with that. But he's thinking, you know what? I'm writing all this because I don't want them to settle on their lees. I don't want them sitting there and, and just being lukewarm and I don't want them sitting there and not doing anything for Jesus Christ. And I don't want them sitting there not doing anything for God. I want this church to get back on fire. I want them get back to the old past. I want to get back to the old ways. I want to get back to the old preaching. I want to get back to the old times of soul winning. I want to get back to the old time of preaching. I want to get back to the old fashioned revival. I want to get back to those times we have all night prayer meetings and times with God and God doing some great things. So he gets to these people and he doesn't berate them and he doesn't chew them out. He doesn't stop across the head. He says, now brethren, listen to me. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren. He says, guys at Corinth, church at Corinth, I love you. I love you more than you'll ever know. And I'm not there, but I want you to know I love you just as I did when I started that church. He said, therefore, I've told you all the things. I've said everything God, the Holy Spirit, wanted me to tell you about the resurrection. But now it's time to get up and arise and get busy and get working for God. So he gives them a charge. God gives us a charge. Number one, he says, be ye steadfast. Stand fast. Be firm. Be fixed. Be firmly established. Be unwavering. Let me tell you something tonight. During COVID-19, your church hasn't left you. Have you left your church? I'm getting reports all over the country. 
Brother Fon, you know, he had to leave. I said, why? Well, he said, he really didn't leave. His church left him. He had to find another church. Your church has not left you. We're here. I said, we're here. Be steadfast. Be steadfast if others quit. Be steadfast if the elections don't turn out the way we want. And by the way, if it turns out the way I, which I think it's going to be, praise God for that. Because we're going to have a smaller window of time. We better get things done for God. You're either going to be a better Christian as a result of this election, or you're going to be worse than you were before the elections were cast. Be steadfast in honesty and ethics. Deal with election fraud. I think there's church fraud. Church fraud. What kind of Christian are you? I said, what kind of Christian are you? Can I count on you? Can Jesus count on you? Hey, are you going to show up if there's no Sam Davison? I'll tell you, somebody greater than Sam Davison comes to Heritage Baptist. That's Jesus Christ. I come to church because Jesus is here. Amen. Be steadfast in soul winning. Hey, soul winning is not an option. It's an obligation. It's a mandate. It's a command from our God. Be steadfast even though it's hard. Be steadfast even though you're hurting, you're lonely, and you're grieving. Be steadfast through inconvenience. Be steadfast in reading your Bible. My greatest fear about Bible conferences and revival conferences because of the busyness of the nature of it. And I don't say this in a bad way and I'm not attacking anybody. But the truth of the matter is, I believe our people in all of our churches, they read less Bible when we have these conferences than when we don't have the conferences. Pastor's heart, you want the congregation to be fed. But I also want a congregation to know how to be self-fed too. Amen. He said, be steadfast. Be steadfast in doctrine. We have a person who's applied for church membership. We say, a new person, God's led to our church. You'll be introduced to that person soon. And I really appreciate their spirit, their attitude. They've, they've taken our, our church constitution, Brother Denny, and our stock. I mean, they have read through this thing, and they have read through this thing. And they're, getting, they're asking me questions. I said, man, I haven't read this for a while. I've got to look this back up. I've got to make sure I give you the right answer here, you know. None of the doctrine, but just some of our church polity here, you know. And this is what they said. The Pastor Fong, I just want to be a good member when I come to this church. I like that. Amen. That's refreshing. He said a second thing. Look at verse 58. Be unmovable. Now, that's different from being steadfast. Being unmovable means you're, you are anchored. I had a friend of mine who was a dev- developer, uh, this is about 20 years ago or so, maybe 30 years ago. And he found a piece of land over there in Emeryville, and he wanted to, uh, I think he was going to build some high-rises or something like that there, or some, whatever, it was going to be some kind of building. And I, and I asked him, I said, hey, I said, uh, you know, that, all that's landfill, did you, did you, is that a good investment for you? It's a really good thing. He said, he said, it is. He said, listen, I've done my surveys, I've done my study. And he told me how deep he had to go to make sure that the building would be secure. He said, well, I've got to go deeper than usual, but we've studied this out. We know how deep we have to go and all that kind of stuff there. That's what he's saying. Don't be moved by gusts of wind. There's a lot of winds blowing. Winds of false doctrine. Winds of false brethren. Winds of false accusations. Winds of convenience. Being unmovable means there's always going to be a windy day. There's always going to be the wind blowing, but don't you move. We need to say like the Apostle Paul, who looked in the face of as he's looking at leaving, leaving there at Miletus and making his way to Jerusalem, and he knowing that the Jews he would face 
were rabid in their thinking towards Judaism. And he says, you know, I know I'm facing persecution. I know I'm facing censorship. But he said this statement, but none of these things move me. And I want to say tonight as a church, I know this could probably fit a New Year's message, but right here towards the end of the year, I want you as a church and I want me as a preacher, I wanted to say that none of these things move me. Listen, criticism doesn't move me. People moving out of the state does not move me. Joe Biden becoming president is not going to move me. Kamala Harris becoming vice president is not going to move me. You say, well, should we delete that? No, keep it on there. You say, well, if our economy goes bust, that's not going to move me. You say, well, what if we're the only church that preaches the gospel? That's going to move me more. Hard work won't move me. Criticism won't move me. Sinsults won't move me. COVID-19 won't move me. Sickness won't move me. Discouragement won't move me. Pride and conceitedness won't move me. Listen, I'm going to tell you, the devil's been shooting his arrows at me this year, and there have been several times, more than I could ever count at any one time in my lifetime, that I've been more discouraged at certain points of time this year than I've had before. But I'm going to tell you something. He can keep shooting those arrows, but those things are not going to move me. And you need to determine that these things that inconvenience and hard work and serving God and getting old and having children and grandchildren all that stuff. None of these things, like Paul said, are going to move me. You say, i got to travel a distance. Welcome to the crowd. We're a commuter church. None of these things are going to move me. You say, Pastor, it's expensive to live in California. None of these things are going to move me. I've got to take Uber to church. None of these things are going to move me. Hurt feelings won't move me. Breaks my heart when people get hurt. I've got to leave. It's going to happen wherever you go. It's going to happen wherever you go. You'll say, I'll find a better church. Let me know when you find it. Then he says something else. Always abounding in the work. Now remember now, Paul's writing to people he spent 57 verses on elaborating and waxing eloquent about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the body of the believer. And he just talked about what to look forward to in glory. Amen? Now this is a part right now, this gets, this gets uncomfortable. I, I can be steadfast and I can say none of these things move me, but notice this next one. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding means excelling, surpassing previous accomplishments, exceeding a fixed number of measure, to overflow. Did you know the Christian life was not meant to be mundane, mediocre, status quo, whatever normal is? I'll tell you what normal is. Always abounding. Always abounding. First, John 15, verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, it shall be done to you. Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Everything I read about the Bible is all about always abounding. We're not to be status quo. We're not to do a little trickle here and there. I mean, God wants us to get on our knees and pray down the mercies of God and pray down the power of God so that God can work those. He says we're always to be abounding. That's why he says over there in Titus chapter 2, he says we're to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Every young person should be doing more. Every older person should be doing more. So, well, you know, we're, Pastor, we've got to walk on eggshells because if we ask people to do too much more, they're, they're going to get burned out. You know why you get burned out? You're not in the Spirit. You know why you get burned out? You don't have a walk with God. Until you get a walk with God, you're not going to have energy. About, that's what the Bible says, and they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Shall mount with wings as eagles, they shall run and knock away, they shall walk and not faint. Hey, this outward man may perish, but this inward man can be renewed day by day, Paul said. Always bound means we need to exercise greater faith. We try to have new people in church every week. We do beyond what is expected of us. Then he makes his last statement here in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And notice he's specific about the work of the Lord. But just so you don't get confused, work of the Lord means when he sows. Discipling. Did you know discipling is not an option? It's part of the gospel plan. 
is part of this, the plan. That means beginning with yourself. And discipling is not taking buddy, somebody through the ABC. We're going to change all that. It's not taking somebody through the ABCs. It's life transformation. It's life transformation. He says this, for as much as you know. Now, they've been taught this before. Now, listen to this. This is good. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can I say this to you tonight? Serving Jesus is a joy. Amen. Serving Jesus is a joy. See, serving Jesus is not a waste of time. Hey, serving Jesus is not an inconvenience. Serving Jesus as well, I've got to fit this in. Serving Jesus with being patient with other people. Serving Jesus, he said there, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Serving Jesus is worth it all. Serving Jesus is not in vain. It's not an interruption, it's not an interference. You serve the Lord, what counts that the Lord is looking and not people. When you serve the Lord, it doesn't matter what people think. And listen, if you're doing it for the praise of man, forget it. Listen, it's better not to have the praise of man and you'd feel insecure about the fact, does anybody care? Because the Bible says this, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. You serve the Lord, what you do has a lasting impact. You serve the Lord, someone is always blessed by what we do. Think about the little boy who gave his lunch to Jesus. That wasn't in vain. Think about when Peter, he was tired and weary, fished all night, caught nothing, but he loaned his boat to Jesus and he pushed it out from, from shore a little bit there and Jesus got to preach and he says, hey, let's take your boat out there. I mean, it wasn't in vain. When Mary broke that alabaster box and poured that ointment on Jesus and wiped his feet and her, his feet with her hair, that was not in vain. When Joseph of Arimea placed the body of Jesus Christ into the tomb, he gave that expensive piece of raw property to the Lord Jesus Christ for his body. Listen, that was not in vain. Listen, when you give the Lord one or two hours per week more at church than you gave before, that is not in vain. When you do more in your offerings and your giving, listen, if your giving is based upon what people think and your giving is based, and by the way, the Bible talks about that in Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to look at that this coming Sunday there when he talks about, you didn't give me your small your cattle and you didn't give me your sweet cane offering he said basically you gave me less than your best hey there's something wrong if god's people who are members of the church are not tithing they're not participating they're giving their offerings and they're basing upon look at what i have but first thing is the tithe doesn't even belong to us it's the lord's it's holy to god the tithe belongs to god it doesn't belong to us and then what in our offerings i mean how do you worship god if you don't have an offering that you give to the lord For as much as you know that your labor, and by the, word, by the way, the word labor is the word kopos. Working to the point of weariness and exhaustion. That's what, he, that's what it means. Paul gives us a motivating charge. He tells us about a marvelous change. He talks about our, mor- our mortal challenges. But listen, brethren, we can leave tonight this service and know that God gave us a charge. In verse 58, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and movable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Hey, would you do more for Jesus? Would you step up for the Lord? Would you stop vacillating? you stop deciding, going this way or the other? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Would you just decide to plant your feet firmly, be a firmly embedded church member, and COVID-19 or not COVID-19, you just say, none of these things are going to move me. I'm going to go on and serve Jesus Christ and give my best for the Lord and always abound in what I do and set a higher benchmark than ever before. And just don't start the new year off with a bang. Start the new year off with a bang and keep going for Jesus there for next year. This is about the resurrection. It's motivating. And the resurrection is a key component to getting saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead. He says, thou shalt be saved. If you're watching tonight by live stream and you're here tonight in this auditorium, let me ask you tonight, do you know for sure you're saved and going to heaven? You must repent of your sins. And you need to realize that Jesus Christ died for those dirty, filthy, rotten sins that you and I have. He satisfied God's demands when He died for our sins, but He rose again from the dead and He offers the gift of eternal life. Hey, you just call on the Lord tonight. By faith and tell him you repent of your sins. You can be saved tonight. Why don't you take a moment this evening as we give the invitation. Find your place where you're at at home in this church.
And let the Lord speak to you. Are you steadfast, immovable, always abounding the work of the Lord? Do you treat the service of God, the labor of God, as being in vain, worthless, worthwhile, or it's not in vain? 